Amen. Well, uh, turn over in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 30. Second Chronicles chapter 30. Last week we looked at Hezekiah and how he restored the worship in the, the temple. And uh, we're going to continue that today. And so Second uh, Chronicles chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. God's word reads, Hezekiah sent all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover of the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at any time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. And the plan seemed right to the king in all the assembly. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, so everyone, uh, that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem. For they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went throughout all of Israel and Judah, with letters from the kings and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king, kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of your fathers, of their fathers. So he made them a desolation as you see. Verse 8. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. And serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion in their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him so the couriers went from the city from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulon but they laughed them to scorn and mock them however some of the men of Asher of Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of the unleavened bread in the second month, a very great assembly. And uh, they set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense, that's all the pagan altars, they took away and they threw in the uh, brook Kidron and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month and the priests and the Levites were ashamed so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. They took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God, and the priests through the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. Verse 18, For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleaned themselves, uh, yet they uh, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise 
than as described. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek the Lord, to seek God the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules for cleanness. Verse 20, And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people, and the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord for the God uh, the God of their fathers. Verse 23, Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep for, for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that had uh, that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. Verse 26, so there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and prayer came to his holy habitation in the heaven heavens um i don't know if you remember uh, there used to be a a tv show called password remember that where you had two people usually they were family members or something and and one they would give the one individual a word and so it it might be a word um maybe it was uh uh password would be read and then the other person had to give the other person promptings without giving them that word so you would say maybe something like magazine the other person would say newspaper and you go back and forth and finally oh oh read um well think about it that that game think about it if the word was obedience (laughs) i mean how would you get the person to come to understand obedience you'd probably come up with things like words like rules duties regulations laws restrictions right i mean and eventually people go oh, okay obedience i don't think you would say joy because <laughs> in our mind frame joy has nothing to do with obedience right uh, but that's what i wanted to th- kind of talk about tonight the joy of obedience because that's what we see here um because joy kind of conveys a lightheartedness and obedience sounds more cumbersome more uh, burdensome heavy and so you don't really relate those two usually. Uh, but most of us would never think that the way to true joy lies on the path to obedience to God. That's the only way you can really have true joy, true joy in your life, especially as a believer, is to be in obedience to God. Um, and so King Hezekiah here, this story in, in, in chapter 30, reveals to us tonight that obedience from the heart to our gracious God results in great joy. It does every time. And we've all probably experienced that if we stop and think about it when we've been obedient to the Lord and, and we're in a, in a kind of a phase of obedience. We usually, you know, we're not bummed out. We're not, we're, why? Because we know what we're doing is pleasing to the Lord. And last week, we looked at, at chapter 29 and we saw that Hezekiah was a godly king 
In the first year of his reign, he did what was right. He resolved to restore not just national worship, but personal worship as a top priority. He realized he needed to be fixed, the people needed to be fixed, and the nation needed to be fixed. And so he, he cleansed, he restored the temple. It took them a long time, but they did it, days, weeks, and they reinstituted all the sacrifices that uh, his father had done away with and worshipped all those pagan things. They got rid of all that stuff. And now in chapter 30, we learn how King Hezekiah invited the whole nation to observe the Passover in Jerusalem. They got it all ready, and then they were going to have a big a big. Uh, Worship celebration, really. It says in verse 26, it was the greatest worship celebration, uh, uh, celebration since the separation of the kingdom. And so he invited everybody to come back. And this theme of, of heartfelt joy, oh, joyful obedience, occurs repeatedly throughout this chapter. It's not only Judah, uh, the, the kingdom there, but also many of the, the people in Israel joined together to celebrate. Remember, they were off worshiping their pagan gods, but some of them repented, and they did join Hezekiah in the lot down there at Jerusalem. And in verse 12, it kind of sums up. It says, The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And... Um, you can see it in verse 21, verse 23, 25, 26. There was this great joy that filled uh, the hearts of these people. Uh, and they didn't want it to end. They wanted to continue. You know, sometimes um, when you're in a certain situation and you're having a wonderful time and, and it's a joyful time and maybe you're with family, what, you don't want it to end. You don't, want, you don't want the kids to go home. You don't want this to happen. You know, that's not always the case, but usually a lot of times that's the case. And that's what was going on here. They were having such a wonderful time of worship, they didn't want to end it. So they, they kept it going. Even though some, when they were invited, verse 10 says they mocked them. They refused to come. So you had some people that were just hard-nosed pagans. Um, but those who obeyed need, really understood that, that deep and lasting joy that only God can give us. And if you want that kind of joy in your life, you have to imitate this kind of obedience. The kind of obedience that says, you know what, I don't care what people think. I don't care what I think. I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do. And so there's five things here, just quickly. It's going to be a shorter message tonight, but five observations about the obedience from the heart here. First of all, obedience from the heart, and that's as opposed to just complying to, to something, kind of an outward legalistic thing, right? When I'm talking about the heart, that's what I mean. It's really a heartfelt obedience, is founded on God's word. And this is important to, to understand. Um, King Hezekiah just didn't pull this great idea out of, the, out of the clouds. Say, hey, let's just have a big celebration Passover time. You know, we'll just go invite everybody and see what happens. No, he was simply, what was he doing? He was simply obeying his Lord, the God, what God had commanded through Moses as a statute of Israel. Um, that's commanded back in Exodus 12, 14. You can also see it there that it was prescribed. Or verse, verse 5 says, so they, the de so they decreed to make proclamation throughout all of Israel that people should come uh, uh, to Jerusalem and all the way down there. And they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So in other words, they were already told to do this, but they weren't doing it. And even though the king turned some things around, he realized, wait, we, we have to go back. We have to do more. We have to do what the Lord 
is prescribing us to do. And, and it wasn't him doing it. Look at verse 12. It says there, the hand of God was on Judah to give them the heart to do what the king and the princes commanded. What? By the word of the Lord. So it wasn't their kind of newfangled idea to do this. Or in verse 16, it even continues. It says that they, um, they took their accustomed post according to the law of Moses. And then verse 18, it talks once again about what was prescribed. So God had laid it all out for them. They were just simply being disobedient. And Hezekiah recognized that and called their attention to that. And he decided to celebrate the feast on the the second month instead of the first. And that's what it it talks about there in verses 2 to 4. He wasn't making that up. It was permitted. If you go back to Numbers chapter 9, you can check this out, verses 9 and 10. It talks about the law of Moses, and this is something that wasn't breaking the Mosaic law. It was something that was permitted that he was able to do. And so his reforms, as we saw last week, were founded on a return to a priority in God's word as a standard of how they were going to live. They weren't going to live by some pagan God's rules and all this other stuff or the culture or whatever. They were going to be focused solely on God's word. And all revivals are always centered on what we would call return to God's word. And that's, uh, unfortunately, that's what our churches across America need today. They need leadership that will say, you know what, we're going to go back to the Bible. We're going to stop teaching about movies and Hollywood themes and all this other stuff. We're going to teach what God has prescribed us to teach his people. And that's when revival will come. And so the Passover feast was instituted historically at, you remember when they had all the the culmination of all the plagues uh, which God brought upon Pharaoh in Egypt when he refused to free Israel. Remember, he asked him, let him go. No, I'm not going to let him go. And all these plagues came. And on the night designated by God, the people were to kill an unblemished male lamb and smear its love Uh, his blood on the doorposts of their house, on the lintel of their homes. And they roasted the lamb and they ate it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And on that night, um, it tells us, the Bible tells us, that God passed through the land of Egypt and he killed all the firstborn men and beasts in the home that were not covered by the blood of that lamb. But he, he what? He passed over the ones that were. And that's where they get that that theme of Passover, celebration of the Passover. And the Passover is also a beautiful picture of the redemption that God would provide through Christ. Right? God is able to, to pass over our sin. Why? Because we're covered by the blood of Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ is our Passover Lamb, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.7. So every person under the shed blood of Christ will be spared from God's judgment. If you ever hear a Christian say, well, I just feel God's judging me, I would stop and say, are you a believer? <laughs> Do you understand what it means to be a believer? Because if you're a believer, you can't be under God's judgment. You may be under his, what, discipline, right? If you're, if you're acting out of sorts and you're not doing what he's wanting you to do, he may discipline you as a loving father would discipline his son. But you will not incur the wrath or the judgment of God ever. We don't have to be fearful of that. And so the deliverance from the slavery in Egypt that this Passover uh, commemorated is a type of, it's a picture of the deliverance that Christ offers us and that that freedom from the bondage of sin. 
And so the Passover, in their tradition, was followed by a, a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And, and that pictured a life of holiness that was required by God for his people. So it was kind of a, a sanctification kind of a, a picture. And it wasn't easy for the Jews, really, you stop and think about it, to, to obey God's commands regarding the Passover. This wasn't something that, you know, oh, we're going to have fellowship time. Let's just get some food and eat. No. You know, just like Sunday morning, when you come in here from the service and you see the food spread out there, it just didn't magically appear, right? Somebody performed some service in the morning to, to make that food appear there, all right? And it's the same thing <coughs> with, the <coughs> with the Passover. As a matter of fact, it was a major hassle for them um, because the man had to take off from his job or he had to leave his fields if he was a farmer. And the wife had to pack up all of her clothes and the food for the whole family. And, you know, if you've ever gone camping with your, with your kids and your grandkids or whatever, you know what that's like. I mean, you got a lot of stuff. You know, it's a big deal. Um, they didn't have cars back then or paved highways, so they usually they would walk. Uh, those who were a little well-to-do would maybe ride on a donkey to Jerusalem where the feast was celebrated. But they had an all-entourage with them. And all of that hassle was just to observe a ceremony that God said was meant to be a memorial for their deliverance from Egypt. That's why they were to do it. And they were to obey God's word. But the point is, is that God's word is not always, it's not always easy. It's not always convenient to obey God's word, is it? It's not. It's much easier probably to just sit in the, 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 the sack on Sunday morning and not come to church. And, uh, you know, rather than go through the hassle of getting up, getting ready, and get the family ready for church, and make the trucks down to the church, you know, it's easier to stay home. Uh, it's easier not to spend time daily reading God's Word in the morning or whenever you do that, to set a time aside away from Him. It's easier just to kind of go blast through your day. You know, it takes discipline to do that. It's often easier to to kind of fudge on the truth than to be honest. A lot of us go through that. It's easier to spend your money as you please rather than being faithful as a manager of God's resources. Okay? Um, it's easier, we talked about Sunday or two Sundays ago, it's easier to yield to sexual temptation than to be pure. That's just the way it is. It's easier to go along with the crowd than to stand alone because of your convictions. So you often pay a high price, my point is, when you obey God. And so it's not always easy, it's not always convenient, but it's also obedience to God's word is not always popular. This is what we see here in verse 10. It says, some of the people in the northern kingdom said, you've got to be kidding. You know, you want us to go through all this hassle, go to Jerusalem, just uh, observe some outdated ritual prescribed in the law of Moses. You've got to be kidding. I am not doing that. There's no way I'm going to do that. And so what they do, they laugh. They, they scorned at them. And it, it's ironic because at this same time, most commentators believe at this same time, the northern kingdom was on the brink of extinction. They weren't sitting, you know, fat, dumb, and happy. They were, they were under the judgment of God. And yet, even though that was true, they still would not turn their hearts in repentance to the Lord. Uh, remember in, in, in Genesis 19, it reminds me a lot, son-in-laws who thought he was joking when he appealed to them to flee, <laughs> right? The, the destruction of Sodom. They thought he was joking. He said, oh, nothing's going to happen. 
And it's the same today, even though people are apart from Christ, uh, they are on the brink of perishing. They will laugh at you, they will scorn you when you take a stand for Christ, and you'll experience hardship when you seek to obey the Lord. You can expect it, guaranteed. But remember, the reason you go through the hassle and the hardship of obedience to Christ and his word is because God's word is what? It's, it's the authority for all of your life. It's the basis for all of your life. A lot of times, we're called to do things we don't want to do. But we're called to do it. We, we have to be obedient to God. And so obedience from the heart is founded on God's word. Secondly, obedience from the heart responds to God's character. Look at, i just read this off for you, um, how, how God is referred to in this chapter. In, in verses 1 and in verse 5, he's referred to as the God of Israel. In verse 6, he's referred to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. In verse 7, 19, 22, he's referred to as, as the Lord God of their fathers. All right, Each of those terms underscores the fact that God is a what covenant-keeping God. He's faithful to his promises. Even when his people have been rebellious, he's faithful. Um, in verse 6 to 9, you see here this letter of invitation, and it blends both the holiness of God, who judges a sin. In verse 7, it talks about the, the, uh, uh, the horror of, of this, this desolation that they, were, they, they were had going on there. And verse 8, his burning anger. But it also talks about his compassion and his willingness to be reconciled to his people if they would just simply repent, if they would simply return. And that should give us hope when we're dealing with unbelieving friends, unbelieving relatives that, you know, for years we've witnessed to them. Don't give up. Continue to share the love of Christ and continue to to pray for them because you don't know how God is going to work in their hearts. And the response of the people in destroying all these idolatrous altars they went through the whole land, and it says, so they set to work to remove the altars that were in Jerusalem. And he's talking about the pagan altars that the previous king had set up, his son. And so the response of all the people shows the only proper response to a holy uh, God, namely wholehearted obedience. They, they knew this was wrong, and they couldn't just say, well, you were just going to kind of wink and nod and turn the other way and let these people, we don't want to create a, a hassle here. For all these pagans, we kind of want to want them to like us, so we're going to allow them to do this. No, they tore them all down, and they dumped them in the, the brook Kidron. Uh, and the point here is that the character of God, while aws- awesome in, in holiness, he stands apart from all other gods, he's also beautiful in grace and compassion. And we have to have that balance right in our own lives. Sometimes when we share christ or god or the gospel with people all they hear is this this angry god who's in heavy heaven ready to squash them like an ant you know you're under the judgment of god and hellfire and brimstone i mean there's a time for that right but you also have to marry that with the idea of god's compassionate that god's gracious that god is loving he's he's willing to forgive those who turn from their sin and turn to him and when you see that God righteously could send you to hell because of your many sins, but what does he do? Instead, he graciously extends a full pardon to you who don't deserve it through the cross of Christ. If you'll just repent, if you'll just turn from your sin to the Savior and trust in him, 
That's the beauty of his holiness and the beauty of his grace that draws your heart to him. Um, God made us so that we will respond to beauty. We respond to that, that beautiful characteristic of God, that, that graciousness and that holiness. I mean, just go out and stand in, in, in creation. You know, go to Yosemite, go to the Grand Canyon. I mean, it's just a hole in the ground, right? But it's beautiful. You go there and you're just, you're speechless. It's like, wow, how could God create something so magnificent? And people flock to those places. Why? Because of their beauty. And when we see how beautiful God is in his grace and in his compassion, to receive us to himself in spite of our own sin, we don't deserve it, it attracts our hearts to obey him. See, that's, that's the difference between someone who's like, they come to Jesus and they say, oh, now my, oh, you're telling me all my sins are forgiven? Past, present, view, I'm just going to go live it up then. Well, that's a little different, right? You wouldn't treat God if you, that way if you truly understood his heart of compassion, his heart of forgiveness toward you. It'd be like the parent who, you know, constantly um, forgives the child and, and helps the child through life and everything. You know, usually um, that child doesn't grow hard toward that parent. Now, there are occasions where that happens, but usually that's not the case. Usually that, that child will work harder to show that parent respect because of their service to their child. Um, and it, it's a very biblical concept. Ro- Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this, it's the kindness of God, right, that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness. I mean, why would you repent? Why would you turn from your sin if you were going to turn to a God who would be angry at you, not forgiving, and carry out his wrath anyway? I wouldn't turn to him. Right? The only reason we turn to God is because we know that he's loving, he's willing to forgive, he's gracious, he's compassionate. That's what causes us. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And that's a good thing to remember when we're witnessing too. You know, God expects us to have a, a kindness in our heart. It's, like I said, it's not just all you know, hellfire and brimstone. You have to have a little compassion mixed up in there, like God's love and grace and, and kindness as well. And so obedience from the heart is found on God's word. It responds to God's character. Thirdly, obedience from the heart yields, it yields to God's person. By this I mean that obedience is not merely, you're not, you're not just conforming to a set of rules somebody made up. Um, even though God's commands need to be obeyed, we wouldn't say they don't need to be obeyed, but our obedience ought to be a heart response to the person of God. You know, if the only reason you come to church on Sunday is go, I just got to be obedient. You know, it says don't forsake the assembling yourself. So here I am. Well, it's it's not a whole lot of joy in that, right? And you're sitting there with your arms folded and it's like, oh, man, just got to obey, got to obey. And and you notice here in verse 2, look at what it says in verse 2. It says, um, uh, for the kings and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken control to keep the Passover in the second month. Uh, for they couldn't, or they, they wanted to do this to the Lord in verse 1, I guess it is, the beginning, at the end of verse 1. To keep the, the Passover to the Lord. It says the same thing in, in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. There's this, this phrase, to the Lord. They weren't doing it to Hezekiah. They weren't doing it to Moses. They were doing it to the Lord. And the emphasis isn't so much on come and observe the Passover, 
All right? That's, that's not the big deal. Uh, rather, it's, you know what? You need to return to the Lord. Observing the Passover is just part of returning to the Lord. And so, you know, we wouldn't want to encourage people just to come to church just to be in church. Right? That's just conforming to legalism. But why would they want to come to church? So that they could be under his teaching of his word and fellowship with the, the brothers and sisters and be obedient to the command that God has given us. So it's returning to the Lord in verse 6. In verse 8 it says, yield to the Lord or surrender to the Lord. In verse 8 it also says, serve the Lord. It's, it's a personal appeal is what my point is. It's not some abstract, ideological, legalistic submission to the law. Um, some who came to observe the Passover were not able we read in verses 17 and 18, they weren't able to, to purify themselves ceremonially as the law required. You had to go through a whole issue to be ceremonially clean to observe the Passover. And, and what did Hezekiah do? Did he rebuke those people and kick them out and get out of here? No, he, he prayed for them and he asked God to heal them and God did heal them. That is, he forgave their ceremonial uncleanness even though they didn't do it by the book. And the point is not that God is sloppy about sin. It's not that God is, oh yeah, it doesn't matter to me. But rather what? He looks where? At the heart, right? He, he knows the intent of the heart. He knows the motive of the heart. That's why it says in verse 19 that who sets his heart to seek God the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary rules of cleanliness. In other words, even though they didn't do it the right way, they were there and they showed up and they did want to worship God. And so there was, there was forgiveness there. Um, we don't have to have a pharisaical outlook on the Christian life like the Pharisees did. Turn over to, to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, because Jesus talked to the Pharisees about this several times. But we'll just spend some time in Matthew, he rebuked the Pharisees because they outwardly, so it seemed, obeyed God. But continually he was saying, your hearts are far from God. And look at what he says in verses uh, 1 to 7 of Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verses 1 to 7. It says, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. All right? It's on the Sabbath, Saturday, and he's out in the grain fields. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck some of the heads of the grain to eat. Not a big deal. But when the Pharisees saw it, they were watching like hawks. we got to catch these guys doing something wrong. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? I mean, talk about eating something that's kind of, you know, a little holy which is not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests. So Jesus, right, you know, right off the tip of his tongue comes this illustration to them. Or have you not read in the law, verse 5, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. In other words, you're so much focused on the legalistic worship laws that you guys have set up, you're missing the whole point. 
And he says in verse 7, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Okay. What's, what's he doing? He's summarizing the whole thing. He says, you know what? It's not, not all about just what you're doing. It's about what's in your heart. You know, you may be serving God on the outside, but in the inside, <laughs> you're resentful. You're, you're miserable. You don't want to be doing what you're doing, but you know what? It looks good. It makes you look good, so you just continue to do it. It's better you just stay home and not do it. That's really what he's saying. Look at chapter 15, verse 8. And this is a subject that Jesus continually brings up with the Pharisees because their hearts were cold toward God, but they dressed in their robes and they put on all this, this big show for everybody and everybody looked at them and go, oh, look at these holy men. But this is what Jesus had to say in verse 8 of Matthew 15. This people honors me with their lips, but what? Their heart is far from me. Key. Their heart is far from me. In verse 9 it says, In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You know, you can actually come to church and go through a worship service totally in vain. (laughs) It could actually tick God off because you're not doing it with the right motivation. You're not doing it with the right heart. You're just doing it from your lips. Think about that next time you're singing a worship song. Are you really understanding what you're singing? Or are you just going through the motions? Or chapter 23, Matthew. And here he really uh, cracks down on them. Matthew 23, 23, he's, all the woes he gives them, the judgments come, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites. All right, they're actors. They're somebody who would hold a clay mask up to their face and pretend to be something they're not. He says, for you tithe mint and dill and human and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. In other words, they would do that publicly. They would all look at what we're putting in the offering. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. They had none of that. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, it's, it's both. It's not either or, it's both. And then he calls them blind guides in verse 24. He says, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I mean, there's a lot of humor in that. You know, it's kind of like the log in your own eye illustration, right? I mean, it's humorous. Jesus was kind of, at times, a funny guy. And I think the Pharisees weren't really entertained because it was almost mocking them at this point. But he's like, really, you're going to strain out a gnat and yet you're going to try to swallow a camel? That doesn't even make any sense. That's, that's a ridiculous illustration to prove a point. And the point is the proper balance is to remember that God's grace never means license for sin. It doesn't mean because we are covered by God's grace that we have the right just to be sloppy about sin. But his grace does mean that he blesses those who don't deserve it. You have to have that balanced out. And so the chief motivation for obedience is our li- in our lives is that the personal God has called us to himself. It's, it's a very personal relationship. See, that's why we believe as a church in, in a very, uh, uh, when Christ died on the cross, he died a very specific death. He died for you. He died for me. He died for all those who would put their faith or trust in Christ. It wasn't some general death. 
that he died for everybody. And then uh, whoever wants to put their, put their faith in Christ, then that counts. No, we don't believe that. It means a whole lot more, you know, if you had a, a group of 10 kids, if you just threw a bunch of candy in a room and said, have at it. <laughs> okay, that would be one thing. But if you came into the room and you walked up to each child and gave them a bag of candy, here, here's your bag. That would mean a lot more to that person. And that's, that's the idea here. So obedience from the heart is founded on God's word. It responds to God's character and it yields to God's personal uh, personality, his person. It's a personal thing. It's not just a rote thing. The fourth thing here tonight I want to share with you is obedience from the heart promotes unity among God's people. When everybody's on the same page and we're all willing to obey God from the heart, and this is what we see in the text, all of a sudden you have the northern kingdom who is separated from the southern kingdom. Um, they had been divided for over 200 years. Okay, they were all messed up, Israel, of the north, Judah was in the south. And, and so, you know, they, they just had a lot of, of, of issues going on up there. They were worshiping pagan gods and all kinds of things. And during the reign of Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, you remember the northern army had killed 120,000 soldiers from the south. Okay, and so at the present time, the northern kingdom was either on the verge of defeat by Assyria, some believe, or had just been defeated. They weren't doing well. <laughs> God wasn't blessing them. Um, it would have been understandable if Hezekiah would have simply said, you know what, <laughs> let them, let them uh, go by themselves because they, they're getting what they deserve. I'm not going to invite them. To this Passover thing. They're a bunch of pagan worshipers. I, forget them. But that's not what he did. Um, because when you love God, you can't turn your back on God's people. And he knew there was probably a remnant of people up there that would respond. I mean, he could have very much said, oh, you know what? Serves you right. <laughs> Be hanging around with that, that group of pagan worshipers. You know, you're not invited. But he didn't do that. It's, it's very significant that King Hezekiah named his heir to the throne, Manasseh, after one of the northern tribes. That's how, how much he, a statement he was making, making to them. Um, Hezekiah was burdened that his brothers in the north would come back to God. And a lot of times we talk about churches who aren't teaching the word and everything, and we come across very judgmental. But you know what? It should break our hearts. We should be praying for those pastors that they, their eyes are opened up to the truth and they're willing to once again return to the Bible and begin to teach their people the scriptures. It's significant that he just didn't say to everybody, hey, come and worship God however, however you perceive him. Um, bring your idols. You can come bring all your stuff to the Passover. That's all right, God. It, we all serve one God anyway. He didn't say that. He didn't do that. He appealed to them in verses 6 to 9 to repent. In other words, you, you better walk away from your pagan gods and, and, and come to the true God. Um, but he also appealed for them to come. And so he did both. Um, some people accuse him of just trying to expand his power base to the north. But I think his motives, because he was a man who followed God, uh, became very true. Uh, his true motive was to call all of God's covenant people back to him. Um, a lot of times we hear of Christians who sometimes get wounded spiritually or even physically sometimes, um, relationship-wise, by other Christians. 
And the first move they do is, I'm not going to church. I'm not going back to church. They hurt me. I'm not going back to church. Um, and they say that, you know what, I'm just going to worship God at home. I don't need the church. But invariably, they not only drop out of church, but what happens is eventually they end up drifting away from God. Because God's not going to bless that. That's why the church is essential, right? That's why we stand up against the government when they say, well, you can't meet us at church. Well, yeah, we can. Okay, why? Because we understand how essential it is. We understand we would be being disobedient before a holy God, and I'd rather answer uh, to the government than to God. Yeah. Right, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. But I would also, I, w- I would rather not have to answer to God, and I'd rather be willing to answer to the government for my disobedience to the government, is what, is what I was trying to say. But you're right. Invariably, they not only drop out of the church, they end up drifting away from God. And guess what? Christ is the head of his church. Okay, I'm going to be accused of creating a word salad here, so we're going to move on. <laughs> and Christ is the head of his church. And guess what? He's not a severed head, right? He's not a severed head. He is organically joined to the body of Christ. And it would be, you know, it'd be weird if I said, hey, you know what, I, I, I love the way your head looks, but I can't stand your body. I mean, that, that would be weird. Okay, that would be an odd statement. Why? Because you and your body are one. You're connected. Uh, I've got to accept or reject the whole package. And it's the same with Christ and his church. Okay, so we don't have that option. And I'll promise you that you'll get hurt by someone in the church. We all do at times. Maybe by a whole group of people within the church. Who knows? Um, Someone described the church as being like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the storm on the outside, you couldn't stand the stench on the inside. (laughs) And that's true. That's true. But you know what? If you love God and you want to obey him from the heart, You've got to work at being reconciled continually with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not easy. It's just like being part of any family, right? It's never just always easy. Um, And that reconciliation can't take place unless there is repentance, often on both sides. But like Hezekiah, we shouldn't hold a grudge against those who have wronged us in some way. But we should seek to bring any fallen brothers or sisters back to the Lord and promote the unity of Christ's body, the church. So obedience from the heart is founded on God's word. It responds to God's character. It yields to God's person. It promotes unity among God's people. Lastly, obedience from the heart results in the joy of God's blessing. And that's the whole point of the message tonight, right? If you want to have a joy of the Lord in your heart, it has to be an obedience from the heart itself to the Lord. And it says these people enjoyed the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread so much that they extended it for an extra week. In other words, church didn't end. They just were getting so much. They were so into this whole worship thing. It just kept on going on. And you know that there's revival in the hearts of God's people when they start saying things like, well, you know, we don't want such a short service. Let's extend it more. (laughs) All right. Um, Verse 26 sums it up. There was a great joy in Jerusalem. 
Verse 27 says, Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation of heaven. This means that God fulfilled the priests' blessings on the people. And they had this great joy that the world doesn't know. No one else could understand it. The people that didn't come to the thing, they didn't understand it. A joy that comes out of obedience to our gracious God. Um, Maybe you've always associated obedience with oppression. <laughs> you know, uh, you've thought that obedience means the loss of some kind of freedom or, or some kind of fun or something like that. That's a, that's a lie from the enemy. That's a lie from Satan himself. Obedience from the heart to our gracious God results in great joy. That's the truth. Um, as the Apostle Paul put it in 1 John 5, 3, he said this, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments, guess what, are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. If they're burdensome, there's something wrong with your heart. Um, I mean, when you stop and realize that Adam and Eve were really the only human beings who truly knew what it meant to freely worship God, they, they could just freely do that in, in the garden before sin entered into the picture. I mean, the rest of us, as their disobedient children, unfortunately, are bent toward rebellion. We're prone to go against the will of the Master. That's what's in our heart. We don't want to conform. But through Jesus Christ and through his death on our behalf, what, what happens? We can return and we can learn the joy of obedience to our gracious God. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, I'll just close with this. But thanks be to God that you were, who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of obedience, uh, of righteousness. You're either a slave to sin, right, or you're a slave to righteousness. That's the only two choices. There's no gray area. Uh, either you're a, you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. Um, maybe God in his grace is calling you from your disobedience to obedience of faith in Christ. And you can begin by receiving forgiveness that Christ provides through the cross. Well, we'll close there for tonight. Next week we'll, we'll look at, uh, I think we're going to be in chapter uh, 32 next week. And um, But Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the example of Hezekiah. Thank you for his willingness to uh, show us clearly what true obedience is and how it does re re result in joy. And when it's founded on your word, when it responds to your character, who you are in God's person, and it promotes unity among God's people, it, rejoice, it rejoices, it, it ends in that rejoicing in the, the joy of blessing, of your blessing. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have called us into this relationship with you. And Lord, we know that it wasn't our own doing, it was only you and your grace that has forgiven our sins and when we turned from our uh, sin to you, the Savior. And Lord, we pray for all those who hear this message, uh, Lord, that they would turn to you continually, that we would continually yield our lives um, and become obedient servants to you. And Father, that we would see that joy well up in our hearts. And we look forward to the day when we'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.